0: Chapter 7 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Her First Experience as a Teacher. The avenues which open into life are many now, and the feet of young people who leave home or school are set at the intersection of many highways. But it was not so in the early part of the 19th century. For those who had aspirations for something else than the farm or shop, the most common and convenient path to larger knowledge and a professional career lay through the teaching of the district school. When Mr. Fowler advised that responsibility be laid upon Clara— To develop her self-reliance and overcome her shyness, there were not many kinds of work which could easily have been recommended. School teaching followed almost inevitably and as something foreordained. She belonged to a generation of teachers and to a family which was quite at home in the schoolroom. Her elder sister Dorothy developed symptoms of invalidism, never married, and in time had to give up teaching, and her younger sister Sally married and became Mrs. Vassel. Her brother Stephen had graduated from the work of teaching, and he and David were associated in farm, gristmill, sawmill, clothmill, and other enterprises. There was no difficulty in securing for Clara the opportunity to teach in the district where her married sister lived. Bearing in mind the advice of mister Fowler, she did up her hair, lengthened her skirts, and prepared for her first work as a teacher. At the close of the second term of school, the advice was acted upon, and it was arranged that I teach the school in district number nine. My sister resided within the district. How well I remember the preparations, the efforts to look larger and older, the examination by the learned committee of one clergyman, one lawyer, and one justice of the peace, the certificate with excellent added at the close, the bright May morning over the dewy, grassy road to the schoolhouse, neither large nor new, and not a pupil in sight. On entering, I found my little school of forty pupils all seated according to their own selection, quietly waiting with folded hands. Bright, rosy-cheeked boys and girls from four to thirteen, with the exception of four lads, as tall and nearly as old as myself. These four boys naturally looked a little curiously at me, "'as if forming an opinion of how best to dispose of me, "'as rumor had it that on the preceding summer, "'not being en rapport with the young lady teacher, "'they had excluded her from the building "'and taken possession themselves. "'All arose as I entered, "'and remained standing until requested to sit. "'Never having observed how schools were opened,' I was compelled, as one would say, to blaze my own way. I was too timid to address them, but holding my Bible, I said they may take their testaments and turn to the Sermon on the Mount. All who could read read a verse each, I reading with them in turn. This opened the way for remarks upon the meaning of what they had read. I found them more ready to express themselves than I had expected, which was helpful to me as well. I asked them what they supposed the Savior meant by saying that they must love their enemies and do good to them that hated and misused them. This was a hard question, and they hesitated, until at length a little bright-eyed girl with great earnestness replied, I think he meant that you must be good to everybody and mustn't quarrel or make nobody feel bad, and I'm going to try. An ominous smile crept over the rather hard faces of my four lads, but my response was so prompt and my approval so hearty that it disappeared and they listened attentively but ventured no remarks. With this moderate beginning, The day progressed, and night found us social, friendly, and classed for a school. Country schools did not admit of home dinners. I also remained. On the second or third day, an accident on their outside field of rough play called me to them. They had been playing unfairly and dangerously and needed teaching even to play well. I must have thought they required object lessons, for almost imperceptibly, either to them or to myself, I joined in the game and was playing with them. My four lads soon perceived that I was no stranger to their sports or their tricks, that my early education had not been neglected, and that they were not the first boys I had seen when they found that I was as agile and as strong as themselves, that my throw was as sure and as straight as theirs, and that if they won a game it was because I permitted it, their respect knew no bounds. No courtesy within their knowledge was neglected. Their example was sufficient for the entire school. I have seen no finer type of boys. They were faithful to me in their boyhood, and in their manhood faithful to their country. Their blood crimsoned its hardest fields, and the little bright-eyed girl with the good resolve has made her whole life a blessing to others, and still lives to follow the teaching given her. Little Emily has made nobody feel bad. My school was continued beyond the customary length of time and its only hard feature was our parting. In memory, I see that pitiful group of children sobbing their way down the hill after the last good bye was said, and I was little better. We had all been children together, and when, in accordance with the custom at town meetings, the grades of the schools were named, and number nine stood first for discipline. I thought it the greatest injustice and remonstrated, affirming that there had been no discipline, that not one scholar had ever been disciplined. Child that I was, I did not know that the surest test of discipline is its absence. Clara Barton was now embarked upon what seemed likely to be a life vocation. Her success in teaching was marked, and her reputation increased year by year. For 20 years, the schoolroom was her home. She taught in district schools near Oxford and established a school of her own, which she conducted for 10 years. Then she stopped teaching for a time in order to complete her own education, as completion then was accepted and understood. She did a memorable piece of school work in Bordentown, New Jersey, and, but for the failure of her voice, might have continued a teacher to the end of her life. Her experiences during the years when she was teaching and pursuing further studies were recorded by her in nineteen o eight in a new manuscript which has never been published. She had already written and printed a little book entitled The Story of My Childhood, which was well-received and brought her many expressions of pleasure from its readers. She thought of continuing her autobiography in sections and publishing these separately. She hoped then to revise and unify them, supplement them with adequate references to her record, and make a complete Biography. But she got no farther than the second installment, which must appear as a chapter in this present work. Before turning to this narrative, which marks the beginning of her life away from the parental roof, we may listen to the story of her first journey away from home. It occurred at the end of her first term of school when her brother David set out on a journey to the state of Maine to bring home his bride and asked her to accompany him. One day, early in September, my brother David, now one of the active popular businessmen of the town, nearly took my breath away by inviting me to accompany him on a journey to the state of Maine to be present at his wedding and with him bring back the wife who was to grace his home and share his future life. There was now more lengthening of skirts and a rush of dressmaking such as I had never known before, and when, two weeks later, I found myself with my brother and a rather gay party of ladies and gentlemen, friends of his, at one of the most elegant hotels in Boston, where I had never been. Waiting the arrival of a delayed steamer, I was so overcome by the dread of committing some impropriety or indiscretion which might embarrass my brother, that I begged him to permit me to go back home. I was not distressed about what might be thought of me. I did not seem to care much about that but how it might reflect upon my brother and the mortification that my awkwardness could not fail to inflict on him. I had never set foot on a vessel or sea-going craft of any kind, and when, in the glitter of that finely equipped steamer, I really crossed over a corner of the great Atlantic Ocean, the very waves of which touched other continents as well, I felt that my world was miraculously widening. It was another merry party and magnificent spans of horses that met and galloped away with us over the country to our destination. But the crowning astonishment came when I was informed that it was the desire and decision of all parties that I act as bridesmaid that I assist in introducing the younger of the guests and stand beside the tall, handsome young bride who was to be my sister while she pledged her troth to the brother dearer to me than my own life. The responsibility seemed to throw the whole wide world open to me. How well I remember the tearful resolution with which I pledged myself to try to overcome my troublesome propensities and to strive only for the courage of the right and for the fearlessness of true womanhood so much needed and earnestly desired and so painfully lacking. November found us home again. Under the circumstances, there must naturally be a share of social gaieties during the winter, and some preparations for my new school duties, and I waited with more or less apprehension for what would be my first life among strangers, and the coming of my anticipated 1st of May. With slight variation, I could have joined truthfully and the dear old child refrain, then wake and call me early, call me early, Mother dear, for that will be the veriest day of all the glad new year. End of chapter 7